Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and this week I'm joined by Jake. Hello. Arthur. Hey, how's it going? Hey. And Brian. Hi, everybody. And that's right, folks. It's another Teacher's Roundtable episode. Um, as we record this, it is, depending on how your calendar is set up, it is either the end or the beginning of a uh, week in August, and all of us here are at most a month away from resuming in some form uh, the job that we've been away from for a few months. And the way that each of our states and or districts is handling these uh, is very different. And so what I wanted to take the first segment here and just kind of talk to each of our guys uh, that's here about what exactly is uh, their local plan for reopening schools uh, in the age of COVID-19. Jake, I've got you first up. Why don't you start us off? What is your place doing? Our school board decided that uh, we would go virtual, but it was after a pretty long, um, uh, protracted kind of uh, debate within the community. But uh, our school board went four to one for virtual they uh, have, there's been um, petitions circulating in sort of these crazy parents groups uh, to get all of these uh, school board members uh, sort of uh, barred from the school board and get them replaced <laughs> because of it. So there's still a lot of anger in the community towards, um, towards this. Uh, but we are going um, 100% virtual they haven't given us an end date for it. Um, they just said as soon as it's going to, as soon as it's safe to do, they're going to do it. Um, in Virginia, things aren't going in the right direction, so I, I don't know. I, I where we have a ton of training to do for how to get this done, uh, and we're I'm going to start doing that next week. Uh, and we recently had. Um, up until I think last week, we were going to be expected to go into the buildings during the virtual teaching um, for really no, well, for political reasons, really. But they, uh, but our district officially said that they, we didn't, we could teach from home if we wished to. But it's been like a big fight, and really, the school board. I'm glad they made this decision, but the uh, the uh, district really begrudgingly made that decision to let us teach from home. They wanted us to come into the building and do the virtual teaching. Gotcha. Uh, Arthur, talk us through what your place is doing. Yeah, I think I'd second that it was, uh, we are on virtual teaching. It was finally announced virtual teaching. I'm sorry for the for passing car noise. Um they, yeah, they did decide virtual teaching after much deliberation uh, during our professional development sessions at the end of the year. It was kind of 
<clears throat> they kept talking about, you know, routines of relationships and how much that was going to be important when students came back to school. But um, one of the other local counties caved and went all virtual. And, it, and then we got, we finally, like a week after that happened, uh, finally our district said, all right, we'll do virtual. And they, what they said was virtual in, until October, which, you know, I guess we can talk about that later. Because <laughs> um, they really do want us back in the schools as much as possible. Well, um so you've just heard from our two uh shall we say virtual virginians uh brian i think you and i have some more uh some commonality here because we we both teach in the same state what's That's going right. on where you are so the uh way the decision shook out for us was i mean as of now we're still on very vague terms with things which i'm sure we'll get into that sort of stuff later but we were told and we were given um I guess the parents introduction video of like the new classroom with the assumption we would go back into school about a week ago. And the only caveat was that uh, the governor or, you know, our particular uh, city would have to also green light everything, but the school has been planning on reopening. And I think the way it was worded to us was uh, back to normal in the fall, which was a very strange way to put it. Yeah, that is, well, that that's dead on, is what I'm going to say. That's exactly how my building handled it. And, you know, I work for an independent building. They they don't have to respond to a, a superintendent or anything like that. And it's exactly the same. Uh, Jake, I found it especially notable. You mentioned that at first they were going to make you go back in for, for political reasons. And um, our building was going to actually do the same thing. And that actually doesn't worry me as much because I guess they were outfitting the classrooms with a, so to be clear, um, my bosses were head up on going physically back basically as soon as, uh, as soon as the infection rate in New York went down at all, let alone to what it is now. And they they never even considered the possibility of doing anything else. They pretended to, but I did hear from sources that apparently we would have been asked to go in and teach from our classrooms, which given that they were outfitting them with a bunch of, of technology, I didn't mind so much, but the truth is that now, and um, it sounds like this isn't the case for anybody else here, but basically the assumption is that we'll go in and at the very least a quarter of our students will be gone every day and possibly more depending on when districts around here do their deep cleaning days. Um, and they'll just have to live stream. And there's really no idea from anybody as to how we're supposed to deal with that, how to teach a blended classroom like that, and what the expectation will be of those students versus everybody else. Yeah, we definitely have the same coming to our class. It's it's known and it was advertised to the parents and um, I don't know if your school works like this, but we're also a, a, a private school and independent school. So we collect tuition and I feel like it was more uh, marketing than anything. Just saying, look how safe we are. We're ready. We're back to normal, things like that. You can stay home if you want. The kids will be connected, but extremely vague terms on everything. Yeah. One thing that we had just going back to the politics of all this is that, you know, there was... In, in my district, our, the four school board members, 
And, you know, right before the school board was meeting to decide what we were going to do, our school district, the day before that, officially announced they do not recommend hybrid learning. They do not recommend in person. They recommend 100% virtual. So the school district had made the call right before or had made the recommendation right before the board was going to meet. And, you know, I do give our school, our, our four people that voted for virtual, that gave us virtual, I do give them a lot of credit because it was a deeply, and it is a deeply unpopular decision. And so I think that this, when they were going to make us come into the class, that was kind of the, the meeting in the middle for it. But eventually, because, and I think it was actually a lot of, you know, action. It was a lot of teachers who were organizing, writing to the school board members. It was writing to the district and filing uh, ADA paperwork, filing, uh, um, you know, medical leave paperwork and just quitting. And I think when all of those teachers were doing that, that kind of sent a message that they, that, it wasn't worth making us teach in a, in a possibly unsafe environment, you know, because we, they wanted us to go into this room with these kind of poorly ventilated buildings with uh, hundreds, you know, or about a hundred or so different people. Cause our schools are pretty big here and it just wasn't safe. And honest to, you know, honestly, like are any of y'all math teachers? I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not, I, I don't want to like offend math teachers or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> there's, a of, there's a lot of teachers. There's, there's some of the math teachers. They're not going to wear ma- they they they're not going to wear the masks. I don't know what it is, but whatever. Um, so we have. So to me, like I was, it was just this weird thing. Well, it's actually I say math, and there's a couple of history teachers too that probably wouldn't wear the mask either. Um, but we, <laughs> it just wasn't this. It, it just didn't make it. They they could not sell that is anything beyond political. So they finally disengaged. Now, what it, I mean, it got the, really the ridiculous thing is that one of our, that the school board was kind of in opposition to, in my district, the um, town council or whatever you want to call it. That is a, a body that's all Republican. And the school board is probably about half Republican and the board at our board and the town council is, is kind of, there's some people out there that are way kind of out there. And one of those, um, and, and just the backstory to this, I don't know if y'all have this, but there's been like some really organized sort of parent back to school Facebook groups that are kind of pushing and they're lobbying to try to get person to person uh, teaching. Well, some of our, some of the teachers, you know, got into online arguments with these people and which I, you know, I knew that that was a bad idea from the get go. That's a real labor action yeah. right there. Yeah. Counter posting. Yeah. Ca- yeah. And, and like bullying works. <laughs> They they got they got into they, they got into fights with these COVIDiot posters, 
they started saying that the logo for our, our union, our local union, was like a socialist Black Lives Matter icon. And then it ended up, like, after we made the decision to go virtual, probably the worst of the town council members said that they were going to launch an independent investigation of the union and teachers bullying the uh, COVIDiot parents. Um, Yeah, which they really don't have any authority over the schools. But that's... But that that's kind of where we're at, though. That the fact, though, that even though I don't think this is going to really amount to much, the fact that someone would feel like they had to, like, pretty much try to persecute these teachers for just saying, hey, please don't kill me, is is kind of saying a lot here. We, we are going to get more into sort of that attitude and, and the outgrowth of that. And, well... Then let me tell you this, because uh, Brian, you mentioned a while back that uh, your your school is, you know, independent. They collect tuition, and so that's really what it was about. Well, I'm in the exact same boat, and so we finally got the reopening plan that was submitted to the uh, state, and um, that in and of itself, the act of submitting the plan was apparently fairly iffy, supposedly. Our bosses claimed that there was no template provided for schools to do it, but there is one, and we just chose to submit a crappy PowerPoint instead, which if that's true, that's <laughs> emblematic of our approach to everything. Uh, it's pretty great. But one of the things that pretty much every teacher in the building picked up on, some of them because like Jake's uh, mythical or not mythical, archetypal, I guess, math teacher or some of his history teacher friends, um, Maybe some of them agreed with this, but most of us didn't. Um, there was no mask mandate in the reopening plan. Masks were required uh, on entry in the hallway, um, in common spaces, which apparently a classroom doesn't count, and anywhere else that you aren't socially distancing. But in the classrooms, they were just strongly encouraged, but not not mandated. And the number of teachers have, uh, for the first time since I've been working in this building, which is quite a while now, um, come together to say, no, we're all going to require, you know, kids to do this and so on. Because the bosses left it up to each teacher, but with the clear implication that if a parent gets mad at you, we're not going to back you up. Uh, That's why we're not actually instituting a mask mandate. So just, you know, let the kids do whatever. They're paying tuition. You're a liability. If you die, we couldn't care less. Um, and before I get too bleak right off the bat, I should also mention um, I talked to a couple other teachers, and one of them is in New York and has uh, it's the same thing, but one of them is in a district in Massachusetts, I believe, and and told me that teachers in that district voted eighty percent to go to remote learning, took medical leave, filled in accommodation paperwork, all of that, and the district still voted to go to full in person uh, five days a week from what I understand. So there is absolutely, and that's in Massachusetts. So there, there's absolutely uh, an almost ideologically independent reaction to this. Like it, it's not necessarily a red state versus blue state thing, the way some people want to make it. It's just absolutely a thing of people cannot handle the idea that uh, teachers are saying, Hey, one of the things that kept people safe is that we shut down schools. Maybe 
let's keep doing that until there's a vaccine or until we can officially get everybody to do the basic things that would keep everyone safe. Uh, so it, it's on a pretty ridiculous level uh, what we have going on right now. Yeah, extremely trying to exercise power over uh, just other adults. Like just, you know, I guess like uh, earlier in the pandemic, what it was, was uh, if everyone remembers the protests over reopening restaurants and nail salons and things like that. So that fight has been won. So now, okay, now the, the next people I need to uh, handle my business are teachers. I need my kids to go to school. I need them taken care of every day. And, and it's difficult. I know, you know, we all know that too, but we got to worry about our own safety as well. Yeah, I think, and you know, that's something that what, what uh, Noah said about, about it not being kind of ideological, you know, up until a few weeks, a week ago, that kind of seemed where, and at least in my community, there was a clear kind of ideological split on it. The, you know, you could pretty much guess the politics of a person who wanted in school versus wanted um, virtual. But now, you know, when I see things, you know, and some of the things that we're going to talk about later and when y'all, uh, you do the show with your New York colleagues, you'll get into more like, there's a lot of people that are more on the liberal side of things who also want to like push uh, teachers and students into the meat grinder. You know, you, you had Chuck Schumer say, oh, well, we got to, you know, the, if we don't open schools, that's going to be bad for the economy, things like that. So now... I did see it as kind of an ideological thing, but now uh, it seems like that's just kind of the American uh, way we're going to do this. It's just to keep throwing bodies at this virus, thinking we can satisfy. Yeah, it's more of an American ideology than uh, a left-right kind of thing, I guess, right? Yeah, it, it is. And, and like, uh, you know, I don't know if this is jumping ahead of anything, but it seems like the way that we're talking about American, the American response to COVID is like a, a failure. I think talking about it as a failure is kind of completely wrong. All of these things have been choices. Like this has been like all of these, uh, this sort of mounting death, this terrible response to it. These are all choices. It's no like we, we have chosen like we could do this and save people or we could do that and let people die we've chosen let people die every you know all along this process so school is just they're just trying to do that um and i just thank god that our district picked virtual yeah and not not to not to get scoldy but i think thanks are merited you know in that case because the um so governor cuomo and and we'll have more on his specific fecklessness um in in a future episode but his his plan came out friday and the very next day i read this piece which is called sharpies it's in mcsweeney's and it's by uh an english teacher in alabama uh named uh jen coleman and normally you know you read mcsweeney's for sort of very dry, uh, sarcastic satire of various kind of middle class things, but this is not in in any way satirical. It, it's 
it's a piece about how uh, this person uh, has a Sharpie in the emergency bag in her classroom um, and how it's meant to be for if there's a mass disaster or evacuation or whatever of some kind, then regrettably, you know, you lose a student because that's a normal thought that you have to have as a teacher in, in the U.S. You can write their name on their um, corpse. And um, at the end of the piece, she says, that Sharpie tells me everything I need to know about teaching through COVID. We could have poured resources into prevention. We could have spent all summer enforcing mask use and social distancing. We could have sacrificed small pleasures for the greater good. We could have kept this from happening, but instead we're blindly barreling toward reopening, even though we know teachers and students will die. We're going to treat COVID the same way we treat school shootings, an unfortunate but unavoidable cost to doing business. There will be some new morbid addition to the emergency bag, some simple tool made macabre by the expectation for its use. And like we always do, we will ask our teachers to stand in the doorways and use our bodies as human shields. And if we make it out alive, we'll be the ones tasked with walking through the wreckage and counting the bodies. And I can't think of a better symbol than that, especially because I teach in a building where, uh, to put it bluntly, a lot of my students meet the demographic definition for a school shooter. And luckily, we have never been even close to a threat of that. And a lot of the reason why is because uh, they're not going to fit the psychological profile because we bend over backwards to make sure that each of our kids feels as special and taken care of as possible. But unfortunately, some of the ways in which we're doing that are also the reasons that we can't require masks in classrooms because these are kids who will claim that they have, you know, 15 respiratory conditions preventing them from wearing them. Um, it's the same reason that there's no real enforcement of anything, especially for teachers, because parents want a docile faculty that they can control and bully. And so ironically, the, the things that made us safe from the old danger are objectively going to make us much less safe for this new one. Um, but what that piece gets at and uh, what really I think underlies this is that these are all of these reopening models are just prima facie unsafe and we are being asked as teachers to go forth with equanimity and and uh you know just just uh with with a stiff upper lip into something that's going to kill people and when we come back from this break we're going to talk about some of the ways in which that's already happening and uh, why so many people are being snookered into supporting it. See you then. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. Uh, I'm Noah, and I'm here with the Teachers Roundtable. Arthur? Hey, hey. Brian? Hello again. And Jake? Hello. And in the last segment, we sort of talked about the specific plans that each of our districts is taking towards the issue of, well, uh, how do you do school in the age of COVID-19? And 
Um, two of us are thankfully, and and I do mean this completely unironically, uh, going virtual, which literally everything tells us is the safest approach, but two of us are not. And um, as we know from talking to people in general, it seems like there's a lot of desire and a lot of push to put teachers back in classrooms physically, to put kids back in classrooms. And one thing that we really didn't get to, we should have discussed the plan uh, of North Paulding High School in Georgia, which you may be familiar with. Uh, well, why, guys? Why Why would you know about North Paulding High School in Georgia? What has brought it to our attention? Um, the fact that it's frightening to watch the... They just packed hallways full of people not wearing masks. And um, I don't know, in another age, you would just be like, oh, that's high school. And, you know, you kind of got to push to get to class. But in the age of, of a pandemic, it's vector, 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 vector. All I see is, <laughs> all I see is contact spreading like, uh, like one of those uh, map, like spiders reaching out across a map in terms of there goes your county. Yeah, it's it's literally like watching a game of Plague Inc. just in full full action. Um, yeah, what we're talking about is a photo that uh, you may have seen, you probably have, of a hallway at North Balding High School, which is just absolutely packed with students. No one's wearing... I, I think somebody counted three masks that were visible in the photo. Um, nobody's obviously doing social distancing. You can't. And it just became very clear that uh, no matter what the school's plan was, no matter what they said they were going to do, it is not working. And uh, more recently, we now know that there have been nine cases of COVID-19 at that school, and they have had to shut down for two weeks, which, as uh, Jake was saying, you know, that's essentially going to be what we're all going to see. And yet, despite that, states like New York and Massachusetts and, and plenty of buildings and school districts are moving ahead with reopening plans. And I know that we're all teachers here and we're a little bit biased, but it often feels like um, there's a bit of a unique push to treat teachers who could to some degree do their job from home as uh, people who need to be sent to the front lines and put in the trenches right away. And there's a piece that's become rather notorious that uh, was published on August 4th and uh, in the Atlantic, so you already know it's going to be bad. And it's called I'm a Nurse <laughs> in New York. Teachers should do their jobs just like I did. It's by Krista McConnell, who is a nurse and a writer. And um, she begins this way. The other day, my husband, a public school teacher in New York City, got a string of texts from a work friend. After checking in on our family and picking up their ongoing conversation about books and TV shows, she wrote, so, are we going on a teacher strike in the fall? What? No! My husband is adamantly against the strike because he understands on a deep personal level his duty to serve his country in the classroom. Arthur, I think you had some thoughts about this piece. Ah, yeah, well, you know, my... <laughs> Exactly. I, I don't know if it's up or it's just like, I need a paycheck. So I'm going to like uh, scribble a couple of things on my iPhone notes and then send it off to Atlantic. We'll publish it without uh, any sort of editing, whatever. But that's a different, you take it you know, at face value as if it was a good faith attempt to say teachers 
are now conscripted and part of our, um, you know, serving military forces, like it's complete apples and oranges to, yeah, and it's complete apples and oranges to say like, oh, a nurse saving a life is the same as a person holding a gathering regularly for extended hours on time to, uh, you know, spread a virus versus the healthcare position uh, profession where generally you uh, treat on a case-by-case -case basis and on an individual basis. I think the other problem with it is it's a big failure just as a, a class solidarity thing. So not only is the teacher just right off the bat taking a strike off the table, which is, uh, you know, one of the few power plays a teacher could have as a, a group, but the the nurse, the author of the piece also is upset uh, in the same way you have people that are getting angry about someone on unemployment because they're going to work and someone that's not going to work is getting paid. It doesn't affect you in any way. It's just purely a, a spiteful position to take on things. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's your husband too. So you're like <laughs> saying, you, I'm getting this money without you actively going to work this, while I have to go to the hospital. But it's not fair because I'm still getting the money or something. Yeah. And it has, it has no effect on her. Like it's, it's just, Oh, I need everyone else to be rather than saying maybe my condition should be improved. It's everybody else's should be brought down. That, that is something that I've said. Uh, I'm going to let Jake go ahead in a second, but that is something that I have said before on this show many, many times that in this country, we would far prefer most of the time to just abuse everybody rather than take a flyer on maybe improving everybody's condition. Right. Everybody's like much more afraid of, of um, letting somebody else have an advantage, but that's all I got to say on that. Jake, go for it. You know, this is like, you know, this, I've seen versions of this argument from this Atlantic piece up, whatever it is. I don't know. Like I would, I would, I mean, are these people even real? Honestly, yeah. like I don't, you know, I mean, I don't even know, but but I've seen the sentiment in in you know sort of local Facebook teacher groups and things saying, you know, why do these other and I, you know I felt it a little bit too. Like my wife worked a retail job; she had to go back to work, you know. But you 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 have to think like that argument that this nurse is making. I had to do it. So you should have to do it. That's not a logical argument. That's not based on how, you know, SARS-CoV-9 or whatever the name, official designation of this virus, it's not based on virology or immunology. It's based on emotion. It's based on how you feel. And yeah, so very much juvenile. This, yeah, it's very juvenile. And so much of this of how we're looking at the school system isn't, isn't, I mean, and there are like legitimate problems with having virtual education. I don't think anybody's denying that huge problems. Um, but so many of these arguments are not logic. Pro they're, they're not based on any kind of reason or medical thing. They're based on a purely emotional response to it. Like I, and that's pretty much, I mean, that's so much of this COVID response is based on emotion and it's not based on logic. It's based on how I feel. I feel that I should not have to wear a mask. I feel like we shouldn't make the students wear masks. It would make them feel bad. 
it would make me feel bad if I had to like get in an argument with some COVIDiot parent over the kid not wearing a mask. And I just think that just look at like how this, it's an aerosol virus. It doesn't care about how we feel or what we want or how we think about this. And, and, and I've seen so many emotional arguments here. And it's like, just look at the, like, do you think that like having all these teachers and kids, do you think that's going to make cases go up or is it going to make cases go down? You know, simple as that. Yeah, there's no, there's no op-ed. And by the way, the op and op-ed stands for CIA operation. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it was, it was a real suspicious bit uh, right at the beginning to put a text conversation that has no spelling mistakes, correct pronunciation, and no emoji. Though that's like strike one, two, three, you're op already. (laughs) Um, the, The thing about that too, Jake, is that I I know we've all seen these right because this is this has been the standard uh, counterpoint to people saying well this is this is going to kill people is that well we're supposed to accept a certain quantity of death right um, which is really messed up on a previous episode uh, punching out stalwart Lou pointed out that the only industries we respect in this country and the only industries that we invest with any power are those industries that kill people. So military, police, that kind of thing. If you have the power of death over somebody, we respect that. And we're now trying to turn not teachers, which is the important bit here, but schools as a whole, education as a whole, into an industry that does that. And the way that we're going to do that is by subjecting the people who work there and um, and and the the kids who go to these schools, uh, to becoming vectors, as as Arthur was saying, because it it's messed up that we're at the point where we're essentially saying, well, you know, only one percent of kids uh, are probably going to die, so it's fine. That's not a calculation anyone should be making, ever. No, and yet here thing. we are just discussing whether that's acceptable. Even on a like on a large scale, obviously that's such an incredibly large amount it's it's wild to think like that but even on a small one like in our school i have 200 kids in the school so we're just going to say okay only we'll we'll sacrifice two students lives or two teachers lives to to keep the school rolling along as normal and um i think part of the general push for this is the kind of misinformation that kids don't get sick from the virus or the kids recover easily from the virus which um yeah, I feel like there's not enough evidence to support that idea yet. They said it was like less prevalent and less common, but why risk it, right? One of the greatest uh, kind of synapses of the crisis was if you know a bag of 100 M&Ms has three poison M&Ms, are you going to eat the M&Ms? Like, why take the chance plus all the, uh, the information that's coming out saying this is a debilitating disease with like three out of four surviving case members having uh, other exist- medical conditions following. Oh, yeah, those kids yeah. are going to have to live with that for however, you know, if they they get sick at 10 and they have untold decades ahead of them where you don't know what kinds of effects it's going to have and what kind of long-term repercussions. Yeah, kids are, kids are having long-term cardiac and respiratory damage. And at first we were told that it was fine because the kids wouldn't spread the virus. Then 
it, that turned out to be untrue. Then it was that kids wouldn't suffer as much damage from the virus. That's not true either. So it's very clearly an attempt to pressure the medical and and um, and public health institutions in this country into doing this. And to be a little bit more upfront about something that Jake said earlier, you know, all of us here, we're teachers. We, we know that there are problems with a remote learning standpoint. We know, and we've seen, at least I have, and I, I'm guessing you guys have as well. We've seen people have to make the hard decision to send their kids to school in person because they they have to work. They they can't give up a paycheck. They don't have the money to afford childcare because we live in a country that has thoroughly breached the social contract. So we live in a country that creates that situation, but then seeks to take advantage of it. So as we send parents off to work for somebody else's profit and to be exploited, at the same time, we're saying we need to make sure, therefore, that the kids are warehoused somewhere. Or we need to keep the... We need to keep the factory running, right? Like once the parents go down, like we got to have their kids up as back uh, backup so that the you know cycles of exploitation can continue. That's that's exactly it. And I'm somebody who really um, like to put my cards on the table. I was good at school. I was a good student. I enjoyed it. It was nice to. Uh, have a, a part of my life that I was recognized for, you know, the the stuff that I was good at. And I tend to be very uh, defensive when people use terms like that. And when they talk about, well, schools are just, you know, warehouses for kids and so on. But it's literally true right now. There's no actual pedagogical element to any of this other than the, the little veneer thin cover they're using to justify it. There's no actual reason to do this. Like Jake has said, um, we're, we're, purely doing this because the feeling is that kids should go back to school in the fall. And in this case, we're purely doing it so that parents can go back to their jobs. And then when they do get sick, you can't blame the fact that schools were open. It'll be, you know, somebody else that's unimpeachable. So it'll be a customer or it'll be a manager or somebody else who just can't do it. We've got reports right now, stores that uh, in my area, like I'm talking about 20, 30 minutes away. Um, saying, uh, employees saying we've had multiple positive tests and they're not shutting down the store and they're not contact tracing. Do you think a massive undertaking like reopening schools, they're going to do the same thing with that? They're going to lie. The only reason North Paulding is closed right now is because that photo went, well, I almost said viral, I guess, no pun intended. Um, but you know, the student who took that got suspended for taking that photo because it doesn't make the school look good. The reason it doesn't look good is because you're forcing students into an infection factory. Yeah. There's no yeah. other option there for them. That's all they have. Right? They're in that hallway. There's nothing else they can do. That's just the truth of it. There's no other way about it. Like once they're in the buildings, that's just how it's going to be. And when you get down to younger kids, like where I mean whatever you said before, three of them in the picture have masks out of however many dozen are there. How about if you get down to a pre-K or a kindergarten classroom where they want to pull them off every five seconds or they can't do it or they're, you know, whatever the reason is, but you're not gonna be able to keep them on all day. I think one of the, the interesting things about that story is that how the school responded to it is they, they suspended the kid that took the picture 
they sent out uh, um, emails to parent to saying that kids could get in trouble for posting things. They sent out to faculty too. Like if you talk about the school and how unsafe it is, you could get punished for it. And we love whistleblowers is, in America. Yeah, that's <laughs> so typical. Of, and, you know, I, I think it could be different in, I mean, in how private schools are run because they're their own little things versus public schools. But in public school districts, something that, you know, an issue that kind of predated COVID and it's kind of coming out to the forefront is just how authoritarian in nature these school districts are. They're, you know, have you, you ever heard of that um, iron law of institutions? Yeah. How, oh, yes. Yeah. Huge fan of that one. Yeah, how, like, the institutions are more about, more worried about, the people in the institution are more worried about their place in the institution than the institution itself. That's what schools are. They're very authoritarian. They want, they are way more concerned with bad press, with teachers and admin doing what they're told versus, because they, you know, like, I don't, like I said, if you're in private school, it's a little bit different. But if you're a public school teacher, you know, and I would, I would assume that this is probably true across the country, people that work in a central office building, they think that everybody that actually works in a building with children is a moron. And I think that, the, I think that goes from like teachers to cafeteria, nutrition specialists, that goes to bus drivers, that goes to principals. They just think that everybody who actually works with kids is a moron. And when you see this attitude come through in thing, we're going to see this attitude come through in all sorts of horrifying ways with COVID. Right now, my district, we have a reprieve because we've got the virtual learning. But here's the thing, that virtual learning, I'm really, really um, going to make sure that I'm kind of, you know, uh, crossing my T's and dotting my I's, so to speak, with this. Because it's such a bad, pub, the public has such a bad taste in its mouth from it. They're really going to be looking at teachers. There's going to be a lot of them that are going to be coming for teachers that are going to be, and parents are going to be coming too. So we're going to see how this kind of authoritarianism in schools and the culture of schools is going to come out in all these bad ways. like the school in Georgia, suspending those students and then threatening the staff. That to me is a pretty classic move because, so I've been doing a lot of professional development around remote learning in my classroom, which is interesting because my boss has insisted that we would be coming back physically. So why was all the development geared to e-learning? But whatever, it's not the first time they've been um, inscrutable, let's say. But exactly what you're saying, we have seen that come out in the quote-unquote, people have been waiting for this, I know you have, 72-point air quote solutions that people say they have to this. Like, apparently, in, in the West Coast, it's called micro-schooling. On the East Coast, it's called learning pods. I don't care what you call it. It's having a governess or having a tutor. It's just going back to old-school teaching for the rich. Um, before they decided to warehouse their kids as well. But that's one solution that's been tried uh, because then you have full control over that teacher, which if I 
if you get into it historically, it's not how that worked, but I'm not going to do that because that's too nerdy even for this show. Um, but then on the other <laughs> scale, Jake, you're absolutely right. Like we, we already face that. And one thing that I think is very important to note, though I, I think I'm going to end up getting more into that in the next segment, is that teachers are kind of going in alone in a lot of, of this. In my building, we can't rely on anybody who's not on the faculty to help out with this stuff, whether it's tech, whether it's guidance, whether it's administration, parents, whatever. Everyone is on the other side of things. And one of the worst feelings from remote learning was realizing how alone and unsupported we truly were by people who kept asking us to reach out for support and then not providing it whenever we actually, you know, had the audacity to ask for it. And it's going to be more of that, whether we go to online learning or not, when we go to online learning. And from the point of an educator, it's really discouraging to have to put up with these very, frankly, just just stupid standards of what learning quote unquote looks like or whatever, because we're the only people as trained as we are and as as overeducated as we are, who are simultaneously held in as little regard and treated as, as, uh, as you said, like morons as we are. Sorry. I think Jake said that last time too, where it's like, you got the admin mindset where if you were as smart as me, you would be admin at this point. And it's just, it's yeah. Every time you reach out for help, it's like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. It's in the end, it's the teacher with the, the class and that's all you get besides any support staff that you're, you're really given. Um, and like, I don't know, during virtual learning in the last time, we were kind of responsible for taking care of students and also taking care of the parents, uh, taking care of the family and kind of doing our best to persuade the group that this was worth their time, that their kids were getting things out of it, that like, no, you can't just let your daughter go upstairs on the computer. She's not going to actually log in and, and be involved. And I guess one of the positive things coming out of my district is like they're actually trying to do professional development for the teachers, uh, or no, sorry, for the families now, so that families are aware of, you know, teachers are doing things this way and here's why. That's a good so idea. That there is, really good. So there's less of that, like, oh, we're, we're educated and we can throw out buzzwords that mean like pages of uh, academia to the initiated group, but are maybe not as transparent for people who are less trained in the field. Yeah, that that was one thing that really shone through. I didn't have a single negative parent interaction for what it's worth. And that in and of itself is kind of weird for a year at my building. Um, so that was very gratifying. But I definitely agree that it often felt like we were expected now to 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 take care. It's it's exactly the right term. Like we were, as other punching out stalwart Chris said on a previous episode, we weren't just adjudicating standards, but we were also supposed to be there for kids and so on. And and all these things that are part of a teacher's job for sure. I'm not saying that they're not. Um, but it became very obvious very quickly that. That what they were trying to replicate was this warehousing mindset um, around the kids. This has been very bleak, and and it deserves to be because 
this situation is is pretty bad. Uh, so I tell you what, Brian, why don't you uh, give us a final thought and then I'll close us out on this segment. Yeah, sure. Just to, to uh, jump off that that warehousing mindset that's come up a few times, I think one of the uh, the kind of talent you develop after you've been in the classroom a little while is sort of like how to navigate around that sort of thing to give the kids like the best experience you can. And that could be like little things like kind of how to pick up on like when kids need things. And that's been one of the big challenges without that support, like Arthur mentioned, is how to how to figure out if, you know, never mind that the kids are learning, but are they are they safe at home and things like that? And there, there's just so much to consider with it. And that actually provides an excellent segue into what our third segment will be, because we're going to talk about is there a way out of this that ends up not with authoritarian school districts and, you know, a, t- a terrible culture? Is there a way out that's actually good? You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm here with the Teachers Roundtable, starting with Arthur. Hey. Brian. Hi, everybody. And Jake. Hello again. And as usual on this show, over the past two segments, uh, we've been covering basically this idea of just why are people so obsessed, uh, some people to be fair, so obsessed with the idea that we need to reopen schools. We need to put teachers and students back in these massive uh, infection pathways. Uh, But we're going to try to get done with a bleakness here and move into a little bit more of a positive spin. And Brian actually gave us a way into that. Uh, by talking at the end of the last segment about how important it became to be more intentional about the interpersonal challenges that, you know, we often navigate in the classroom. And and I can't say enough how much, number one, I'll be honest, how much I wasn't good at that during distance learning for a number of reasons. And number two, how much that is going to be a big part of my approach Jake, you mentioned in the last segment that for you, you know, this is going to be very much about uh, dotting your eyes and crossing your T's. And I mean, the same for me. I, I guess what I'm getting at this, because I don't really want to turn this into shop talk, is that we're all teachers here. We all understand that being in the classroom is more advantageous, that more learning happens, that you get to deal with kids on a level that is fairer to them and to you, that you actually get to have the time with them that you should. If we're saying that we don't want to go in, it's not because we hate our students and it's not because we want to sit in front of our computers doing nothing or what have you. It's because we don't think that's safe. It's because we don't trust our districts and our administrators to provide us with adequate protection. It's because we don't trust uh, and we shouldn't trust kids and parents who are dealing with insane emotional and and physical really challenges to their health, to their life, to everything, to uh, keep up the kind of precautions that we're going to need to take to make this all happen. If if there was a vaccine tomorrow, I think we'd all be in agreement. If we all got you know the little shot and we were fine, we'd be in the classroom. That's not why we're saying no to these things. And I think it's important to mention that um, before we get on to talking about what's a way out of this. 
Absolutely. I think that that, you know, is, you know, a key thing is like, I don't think any teacher really wants to do all virtual. Like I would be, it, my summer would be much easier if I knew I was just going to have a normal school year, but it's just not with these concerns, it's not possible. And I'll tell you, I've given up explaining that to people and saying it like, I don't care. I truly, utterly don't care what these angry parents or angry whoever say. Like, I don't care. I just, as long as we start virtual in the fall and continue to do that, as long as it's unsafe to have in-person school, that's all I care about. I think one of the one of the greater rallying cries that came out of this was uh, the one teacher was like, I can't teach if I'm dead or and the same is true of the students. Like I can't I can't learn if I'm in a hospital on a ventilator or like one of our kids underwent brain surgery like two times. I think it will be great thinking positively if lowered expectations and lower tension on students is at least one of the outcomes out of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that could be one of the outcomes of this. And in here, I think that it it can be pretty scary real when you have kind of your illusions shattered. <laughs> and I think um you know this goes back to what Noah was saying about teachers being overeducated and about about nobody having our back. And I think that teachers thought they thought that they had a certain amount of capital with society, with with parents, with districts, with uh, school boards, with uh, state and local governments. We thought we had a little bit of capital in that. And now we found out that we don't. We, you know, our school districts, they don't view us any differently than Subway corporate views their sandwich art. And we had, we were under the mistaken impression, we had this inflated source of self that we were kind of above these other kind of workers. And the truth is that we're not. And to me, that's kind of scary, but it's also liberating. Because now we kind of know where we stand with everybody. We know where we stand with the districts and with the school boards and where, and with the governors and all of those people. We know where we stand. And that can be pretty liberating when we know where we stand. And it could also be liberating that we know that nobody's got our back except other teachers. We have to look out for each other. You know, that's very interesting because to me, that was something I, I come from a very different cultural background when it comes to education and teaching. One thing that I'd like to tell people is, you know, it is entirely possible to condemn a bad or abusive teacher and to hold teachers to high professional standards and still expect students to meet them halfway and still let them be people, let teachers be people and still understand that this is an insanely difficult job and that some slack is necessary. So it was always kind of there in the background for me that this is not how I expected um, teachers to be treated by society at large. And by this point, I've grown kind of used to it. And it's just kind of another disappointing truth about moving up to the United States, which was, you know, supposed to have the the roads inlaid with golden bricks and whatever. I'm kidding. That's early 20th century crap. But you're absolutely right that there is something, there's something to hold on to there in the idea that you can't depend on anybody else. 
they they will turn on you very often but that's because of the position that society has put teachers specifically in i think we live in a country that really hates the idea that somebody's job is to be in some way smarter than you i think we really hate uh, just like i said you know um we only respect the industries that do death um so the industries that that help us safe lives, you know, nurses who do so much work uh, in hospitals every day get none, get nothing compared to what doctors get in terms of respect or prestige or power. Uh, much the same way teachers who are supposed to help educate these people and make them good citizens get none of the respect accorded to bosses who are going to tear them down and take away all of the independence and all of the good values that we're supposed to teach to turn them into good little worker drones later. And so there is there is something to hold on to there in the fact that we need to understand that we have been put in an untenable position and that COVID is really just showing the extreme version of that and that we need to depend on each other. And to some degree, I can't do that because I'm non-union. I'm super overexposed. Uh, you know, John Robert Roberts has made sure of that, but that is something. The, the idea that there might be solidarity to take from this, I think is a real positive development. Um, yeah, I, one of the things I was kind of disappointed in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protest, like I had a secret hope that, you know, one of the things that will really defund the police is a nationwide teacher strike. And this is, I feel like this is off topic, but that, if we're really trying to <laughs> push back on policymakers and, you know, really improve the conditions of the country that people believe it's our duty to solve, right? Because everything is on education as the equalizer, despite the fact that um, healthcare is not a, a natural right and housing is not a natural right. And that's just, it should be easily recognized that that's dead wrong. That you can't have free and fair public education without free housing and without free Medicare. So growing solidarity would be a wonderful outcome in the wake of this crisis and generally recognizing that how much the people around us are essential to us. Like, yeah, we found out the local supermarket was an essential service and kind of breaking down libertarian ideas of we don't need each other when really we only survive because of the work that other people do. I, I can't think of a better way to end this episode than that, because I think it is important to note that whatever the op in the Atlantic says, you know, it's not like we haven't derived our needs and our and, and some benefit from the people around us who have been going to work during this thing. And that, again, all else being equal, I think all four of us, and, and I know I speak for all four of us, would go back into the classroom without hesitation if we knew that we would be safe and that our students would be safe in it. Uh, and that the reason we we are so staunchly against that is not because we, we don't want what's best for them, but precisely because we do. I want to thank you all once again for uh, coming on today to talk about this. I know that this is a really deeply emotional topic for all of us and that it, it I don't know about you guys, but I'm very much in my feelings at the moment um, as I contemplate the return to the school year. And I want to thank you all for uh, being here with me and, and helping process this on a Sunday night. It has been, as always, wonderful to talk to all of you. And uh, I 
hope we can do it again soon about something a little bit more positive. Yeah, thank you for for giving us this uh, opportunity to come talk with this kind of really important stuff. Absolutely. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Noah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And I know we could go on forever, but we're running up against the clock. So for this week, I'm Noah. Uh, I'm Jake. This is Brian. And this is Arthur. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.